0: Um, I wasn't sure what my cue was there, so <laughs> a but a bit laid off the uh, starting blocks. Well, we're glad you it? It? Thank you. I don't know about you, but I have enjoyed the temperatures this summer. Um, some people have complained about it, but I I love hot weather. And um, what have we got up here? Oh, there we go. Um, and I thought that this title might be apt when I was first asked to speak. Um, But I I, I began to rethink it. So this is my working title. I began to rethink it um, because the more I spent looking at this particular passage, which we're going to get to in a second in Matthew uh, chapter 8, the more excited I became about it, the more things I discovered, things I saw I hadn't seen before, uh, and um, I, in getting ready for this, this, this morning I, I had this um, small sort of crisis because it's, it's that, that experience where you've got so many things you want to say, you're really enthusiastic about it, but you realise that no one's going to stick around uh, if you go past a certain time. So I was, yeah, I was reminded of, um, of what the math- mathematician uh, Blaise Pascal said. Um, he was writing a letter to a friend, and he said, um, I have written you this long letter because I didn't have enough time to write you a short one. Uh, and so I thought to myself, right, well, what is the essence then of what we're going to look at this morning? What's the, what's the heart of what I want to say? There are so many things that could be said, but what do I want to say this morning? What is God putting on my heart to share? So I decided not to go with this title. Um, I don't know if you've ever seen the Don't Sweat the Small Stuff uh, books. It's, it's a whole industry now, there's all kinds of uh, versions of that, you know, for teenagers, adults, uh, you name it. And I got given one of those books when I was a teenager uh, from, I think, my auntie, well-meaning. Um, I took one look at the, co- the cover, and I thought, oh, and I threw it out. So I never actually read it, um, and I'm not going to uh, talk about that. But I was thinking, this is a great example, Matthew chapter 8, of what happens when you don't need to worry about the big stuff, and how that's possible how it's possible not to sweat the big stuff. But I changed my title because this is actually, where do I point this? Oh, I've to turn it on first, don't I? There we go. This is what I wanted to go with instead. When you can't bail fast enough, and if you can read that, and then you find the creator of the universe asleep at the back of your boat. Because this for me is, is the, the real key Thing I want to explore this morning. A particular story uh, that we find midway through. So I better read this passage before I use all my minutes up. Um, I'm going to start in verse 14 in Matthew chapter 8. When Jesus came into Peter's home, he saw his mother in law lying sick in bed with a fever. He touched her hand, and the fever left her, and she got up and waited on him. When evening came, they brought to him many who were demon possessed. And he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were ill. This was to uh, fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet. He himself took our infirmities and carried away our diseases. Now when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to depart to the other side of the sea. Then a scribe came and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus said to him, The foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests. But the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, permit me first to go and bury my father. But Jesus said to him, Follow me and allow the dead to bury their own dead. When he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being covered with the waves. But Jesus himself was asleep. And they came to him, and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. He said to them, Why are you afraid, you men of little faith? Then he got up and rebuked the winds and the sea, and it became perfectly calm. The men were amazed and said, What kind of a man is this, that even the winds and the sea obey him? Heavenly Father, we ask this morning is that, as we look at your word, and we try to wrestle with, with the meaning here, That you would illuminate this this text for us. That your word would be uh, made clear in our understanding. And that you would reveal yourself in every word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I love boats, which is kind of why I I came up with this title instead. And it's, of course, relevant to um, the story towards the end of that passage I read. I don't know if you have a, a good grasp of South Pacific geography. Um, even the best uh, geographers may not know about this island, which exists. Um, well, I'll show you what I mean. There's a map of the South Pacific. And you've got Tonga, Samoa, Vanuatu, New Caledonia in the middle there. The island that I just had up on the previous slide is not on that map. It's, this is a close-up. It's a very small island, as you can see here, Um, only about, I think, what, 10k, maybe 9 or 10k long, and about probably 4 wide at the most. Now, this island, uh, the reason I'm I'm bringing it up here on the slide is because I uh, had an experience um, 13 years ago this May, uh, in which I arrived on this island, um, but not in the conventional manner. Um, the red arrow there is is indicating the point on the reef that runs around the island, um, which I and four other people on the boat um, landed up. So we we got shipwrecked, and um, it's a, one of those stories that uh, that gets maybe maybe gets a bit more creative with the telling over time. Um, I, I will try and stick to the facts as I remember them. Of um, course, that's a dangerous clause, isn't it, as I remember them. Um, but this island, and the reef in particular, uh, have been seared into my memory. Because it was a, a very eventful night, the night that we crashed onto that reef. Just to give you a few, few details, myself and four others were on a boat. Um, probably some of you here have been on that particular boat. It was a boat called the Dayspring. that used to be used for... Um, taking Bibles to the South Pacific and, uh, and spreading the gospel. And I was on the last voyage of the day Spring 3. Um, and uh, we were sailing from Fiji, which is about oh, 350 nautical miles uh, that way. And we were heading to uh, Wallace Island in order to um, take some, some Bibles to share the gospel with people there. Uh, most of whom are Roman Catholic, and, um, and, and we wanted to, to go there and share the gospel, and it was the beginning of a, uh, a winter season of cruising through the South Pacific, which sounds tough, I know. Um, and we didn't imagine that this would happen to us. Of course, it's a possibility, but you never think it will happen to you. When we hit the reef, it was about 10 o'clock at night, and uh, we hit it with an almighty bang. Uh, it was a big steel yacht. And it was a big, solid reef. And the surf was a couple of meters high. uh, And that was on the more sheltered corner of the island. And we surfed on top of that reef and then got thrown around like, I don't know, fish in a barrel. Well, no, that's not the right term, is it? But anyway, uh, like about five five clueless people in in, in a barrel, basically. Uh, We got rolled around. We got thrown about. A few ribs were cracked. I didn't crack any, but someone else did. Um, Others... You know, got a few injuries along the way. A bit of water was taken in, both in, into the boat and into our lungs. Um, but, but five of us found ourselves clinging to this yacht. Absolutely helpless. And as you can see, it is quite away way uh, from the nearest bit of land. That little island sort of down across there to the right, uh, there's no one on it. And even swimming that kind of distance, uh, even the best Olympic swimmer would have uh, found it impossible, because the currents that run within the reef are very strong, and are basically like rivers, and they can take you out to sea, you don't know where they're going to take you, um, but there's a lot of sharp coral, and anyway, it was something of a nightmare. Uh, there we were, helpless, stranded. I'll come back to the story a little bit later. Now, this passage, I've, I've looked at these verses, verses 14 to 27 in particular. But I think it's important in a second to look at the context. It's jam-packed full of events, things happening um, that Jesus, you know, he's at the center of. So starting with, with the first uh, event. Peter's mother-in-law has a fever and Jesus while visiting their home heals her. My mother-in-law's here this morning, and so I have to treat this particular part of the passage with great delicacy. I don't want to say anything um, inappropriate. Thankfully, I have a great mother-in-law, just so you know. Um, so I won't make any jokes about it. But uh, that's the first thing that happens. Jesus walks into Peter's home, and while he's there, discovers that Peter's mother-in-law has a fever. She's seriously ill. And with a, just a simple gesture... Heals her. The next thing he does is he casts out the demons of many who are demon-possessed and heals many who are sick and infirm. Word was spreading very quickly. The crucial thing to note as we go through the story is that he says uh, to the, the demons, go. Simple word. In other places, we read that he does the same thing. He says, go. That's all he does, and they leave. And of course, there's nothing that he can't handle when it comes to illness, disease, sickness. All of it is subject to his authority. The next thing he does is he and his disciples get into a boat and head across the Sea of Galilee. When they get to the other side, they have two conversations. Well, Jesus has a conversation, I should say, with two different people. Uh, The first is a a potential follower, a scribe, a teacher of the law. And and he says to Jesus, I'm going to follow you wherever you go. And Jesus says, Foxes have dens, birds have nests, but the Son of Man, meaning himself, has nowhere to lay his head. The next guy says, uh, Jesus, I'm going to follow you. I'm definitely going to follow you, but I've just got to go and take care of one thing before I do that. Now, this is, of course, open to interpretation. Had this man's father just died? Or was he saying, my father is, he is getting older, and at some point he's going to die, and after I've taken care of him, as is my responsibility, my duty as a good son, um, then I'll come and follow you? Could have been either. We don't know. But Jesus answers in quite a shocking way. He says, let the dead do their own dead. Uh, Quite a a confronting statement. It sounds callous, it sounds uncaring, doesn't it? We'll come back to it. Finally, they they cross the lake again. And uh, a storm comes up and threatens to drown them all. Jesus is asleep in the back of the boat, and so he's woken by his disciples who've tried everything they can think of, as fishermen, as sailors, and they finally wake him and say, come on, don't you care that we're going to drown here? He calms the situation down with a simple command. He rebukes the wind and the waves. Or in Mark's gospel, in his version, he says he uh, rebukes the wind and basically stills the waves or calms the waves. And then he says, you guys, where's your faith? You have little faith. So, I don't know, your reading of this might be, might be similar to mine, uh, and initially I thought, going back to the story, Jesus is quite tough on his disciples, isn't he? He gives a lot of credit to people um, who aren't necessarily following him closely, but random people he meets along the way. But when it comes to his disciples, he's tough on them. He often says things um, that sound like, He's scolding them. Oops, there we go. But context is vital. Uh, as anyone knows when you're, you're, you're studying the Bible, context is vital. You've got to look at what surrounds the passage. And uh, as I said before, this passage is, is jam-packed. This, this chapter is jam-packed with events. Jesus at the center of them. Um, First of all, in the three chapters that lead up to this one, we have Jesus delivering the Sermon on the Mount. And I mean, I hope that by the end of this uh, message today, you're going to leave realizing it's very important to listen to sermons because they might just come in handy uh, when you go out and start doing stuff. Um, But that's up to you. So there's a Sermon on the Mount. Three chapters of that. Then at the beginning of chapter 8, A leper comes to Jesus as he's descended from the mountain and he says to him, Lord, if you're willing, please heal me, please cleanse me. And Jesus responds, I am willing be cleansed. He then encounters, Jesus then encounters a Roman centurion. The Roman centurion appeals to Jesus on behalf of his slave or his servant who is paralyzed and is lying in agony at the centurion's home. The centurion obviously cares deeply about the welfare of his servant. And he comes to Jesus and he says to him, please heal him. And Jesus says, well, okay, where is he? And the centurion says, you don't even have to come to my house. You don't have to come to my house because I know that you have the authority to simply say it. And it'll get done. He says, I'm an officer in the Roman army. I know where my authority comes from. It comes ultimately from Caesar. And when people see me, they see how I'm dressed, or they see my, um, you know, my medals, or my, my armor, or whatever it might be, they recognize that I go with the authority of the leader at the top, the supreme leader, Caesar. So I know, first of all, where I take my orders from, or whom I take them from but I also know that when I give orders to my subordinates, they're going to do it. Not simply because it's me, and I have mana or I have you know, clout or authority in my own right, but because I represent someone who has supreme authority. And he, he says to Jesus, you just have to say go, let it be done. Whatever it is that you say Jesus, and it will happen. I believe. And Jesus, you know, his, his response is, I've not met anyone with faith like yours before. Your faith is great, greater than any I've seen in Israel. The centurion most likely is a Gentile. So that's the, that's the context, at least that's what leads up. And then after the passage I read before, you have the story of two um, uh, men possessed by demons who are found wandering around tombs, scaring everybody away, and Jesus... again, with a simple command, go, rid some of those demons, and they are restored. Uh, That's the context. I think there's a few important things to note in the text. First of all, faith, as we see it here, but also in, in context, as I was talking about. Consider the Sermon on the Mount as well when you read this passage. In context we realize that faith is recognizing that it is about his will. The the man with leprosy who approached Jesus at the beginning of chapter 8, he says, Lord, if you are willing, you can heal me. We can't approach faith from the point of view of I want God to conform to my will. But I need to recognize that In approaching God in faith, I am saying, God, I am conforming to your will. And that's tough. It's tough for a number of reasons which we'll explore in a minute. But we can't get past that fact. It's not simply a matter of ask and it will be given if we don't consider the context in which Jesus spoke those words. He said, ask and it will be given during the Sermon on the Mount. But he also said earlier about how you need to pray in chapter 6. And he said, thy will be done, when speaking about how we pray for the Father. Jesus himself said, I'm doing the will of my Father. I didn't come here with my own plans. I'm here representing my Father. And I don't do anything that isn't a part of his will. So if Jesus could do that, then I guess the, the, the logical consequence is that we need to as well. Second point I wanted to sort of make mention of is that he accomplishes his work with a simple word or gesture, and I mentioned that a little bit before. But there's nothing more complicated about it than that. Go. Be cleansed. In some cases, it says with well, a word. We don't know what the word was. But it's clearly not a magical uh, incantation. It's not a spell. It's not um, some special prayer that unlocks these magical, mystical powers. There's a reason for that, isn't there? If Christ is the Word, then He literally, when He speaks, brings things into being. Through Him, all things were created. He is the Word, as John 1 points out. Uh, And we know in, in Genesis 1, that everything that... We we see around us everything that exists came into being because God spoke it into being. So it doesn't have to be a fancy, elaborate kind of prayer or phrase. It is a simple word, sometimes as simple as go. But of course that depends on, on, on knowing the Father's will. And if you know the Father's will, then he's already worked it out. He's already planned it, and you're simply working that through, allowing him to work through you. A third point I want to to make mention of is we have to accept that he has authority to work, Uh, and I've sort of touched on that already a little bit, but in John 12, verse 45, he says, he who sees me sees the one who sent me. When we appeal to Jesus for help, we're appealing to the Father. We're appealing to the creator of the universe. He's not um, some totem, some, um, some mascot. He's not a saint that we're appealing to. He is the creator of the universe. He is the word, and he can speak all things into being for the word. I think the really important point here is that faith is not about visualization. Tiger Woods is, um, is a famous proponent of visualization, and um, of course, he hasn't had such a great run in recent years, but he, he is undoubtedly one of the greatest athletes the world's ever seen. He has incredible focus, discipline, drive, and obviously talent. That's naturally there. But he does what he does, apparently, because he visualizes that outcome. He sees himself on the 18th hole, sinking that putt in a certain way. And he's going to be there uh, trying to follow through on how he imagined it happening. But faith doesn't actually work like that. At least not from what I've seen and what I've read in the Gospels. And in my own experience too. Faith isn't, if I will it into being, it's going to happen. So it's not a method of visualization. It's also not about us willing something into being, and it's not like the balance in your bank account. Because if it's like the balance in your bank account, you know, where if you have more dollars in the bank account, that makes you wealthier, or if you have more faith in your faith account, that makes you more faithful. It doesn't work that way, does it? Paul tells us that in Romans, that Abraham was credited with righteousness because he simply believed. believed he believed before he even had been circumcised or had done anything noteworthy. He was told by God that something would happen. He just needed to trust God for that thing to happen. So he heard the word of God, his encounter with the word was enough to convince him of the reality that the creator could do it. It's not like the bank account and how much you have in there because that would then become a message about works. And we know that our salvation is not through works, it's through grace alone. Faith isn't uh, God's going to reward you the more you believe, or the, m- the more you believe in the past, the more likely He's now going to grant you your wish. Again, we've got to come back to that point. If He is willing, He will do it. But it's so important to remember that it's not a, a, a matter simply of saying, well, let's just be, be faithless then. Let's just you know, leave it all out there and whatever happens, well, case there are, are. It's not about that. Because he cares deeply. He cares more than anyone else will ever care about our situation, about the situation of our loved ones. His will is not some random, indeterminate thing that we can't pin down. It makes sense. It's in line with his character. If he is love, then his will reflects that. And so it's not about How much faith you have in your faith account. It's not a quantifiable measure. Jesus makes that point when he talks later on in the Gospels about faith being like a mustard seed. He said, You only have to have that amount of faith in order to move mountains. Well, what's his point? His point really is that it's not actually about the quantity, it's simply about either having faith or not having it. It is a choice. But it's also been described in other ways, um, which I, I've really found helpful. Um, this man here who passed away a few years ago was a, a good family friend of ours who we miss dearly. But he was a Christian psychologist uh, from the States. And I don't know, maybe a few of you here have, have heard him speak when he was in New Zealand, um, read his books. But this one here in particular, Sidetracked in the Wilderness, has been um, a huge uh, help to me in my understanding of this, of this subject. But he said, faith is an organ of the Spirit, allowing us to receive whatever God is doing. We can readily see why if we have faith like a mustard seed, we can move a mountain. The eye of an ant and the eye of a camel both receive light. Faith itself, not quantity of faith, is the issue. Faith is either seeing or not seeing. You either see and recognize that Jesus is capable of doing anything that God wills or you don't see it. You might see, you might have been a disciple in those days, and and you saw a man, you saw a carpenter from Nazareth, but you didn't see the Son of God. You were curious, you wanted to hear more, but it wasn't until the day of Pentecost when suddenly it all made sense, because the Spirit came to live in you. If you were one of those disciples back then, like Peter, you would have struggled, and he did. Clearly he struggled, because he was one of those guys in the boat that was being overwhelmed by the storm. But faith is not a quantifiable thing. Now, you probably think to yourself, hold on a second, there's a couple of things that Jesus says in this passage that, that, again, challenge that notion. But I think it makes sense in light of a few other things. So here we go. Faith, I think, is more like a clutch, all right, in a car. Um, some of you don't know how to drive uh, a manual, so um, this may be completely over your heads, um, but this analogy I think is a good one. Faith is, is, is more like a clutch in a car because it is not the clutch that gets you from A to B, or at least it's not the clutch that has power. It's the engine, hence that photo there. Um, I don't know, that's probably taken in Russia or something like that, eh? um, I have no idea, but anyway. It's not the, not, not the clutch that powers the vehicle, it's the engine. And the Spirit of God is the engine in your life, or he should be. Faith, however, is like the clutch because the clutch allows you to access that potential. It's recognizing that if you put the clutch into a higher gear, you're going to achieve greater speed. You're gonna go places quicker. So what do we make of Jesus and his statements about little faith and great faith? He said to the, the centurion, oh, great faith. This guy's got great faith. He says about the disciples in the boat, oh, you know, you have little faith. Where is your faith? But bearing in mind what he said about the mustard seed and quite a number of other places in the Gospels where he talks about simply seeing or not seeing, being blind or not blind. I think this makes more sense. When he says great faith, I think what he's saying here is it's the belief that great things are possible. It's not how much faith you have in your faith account. You either recognize that he's the creator of the universe and he can do all things and that he cares more deeply than anyone on this earth about your situation. Or you don't. And you think it's all up to you and life, as it has been in the past, which has always been a struggle, is going to continue to be a struggle because you're on your own. And all he's doing, as God, is making life more difficult because he's telling you, you've got to live like this, and you've got to do that, and you are got to be like this. And you just don't know how to even get into first gear. So like I say, great faith, I think, is the belief that great things are possible, little faith, the belief that nothing is significant possible. The leper, at the beginning of chapter 8, he's at rock bottom. You can't get any, you know, uh, any worse than that. His, his body is literally falling apart. I know some of us feel like that some days uh, when we wake up. Um, but he literally is falling apart, starting with his fingers and toes and his nose and his ears. That's how leprosy typically affects someone. But he recognizes is and he says you can do it if you want to if you're willing because I know that you care and I know that you're capable so I'm gonna I'm gonna leave it up to you Lord doesn't mean he couldn't ask it's not simply a matter of saying if God wills it um, well I won't bother asking we're told to ask chapter 7 of Matthew he says ask and it will be given But of course, it has to be given in accordance with his will. So, great faith and little faith. Though I don't think it's about faith in the faith account. So, you're probably asking at this point okay, what happened on that night uh, when you hit the reef and there you were, five of you stuck on that boat and you were getting thrown around? Well, um, we had no options really. We tried the radio. And for hours, we got no response. First of all, because we couldn't tell anyone where we actually were, because we didn't know where we were. Uh, And I won't go into why. But we didn't know where we were, and so therefore we couldn't say where we needed to be rescued from. All we knew was that we were in great trouble. The second problem was that we couldn't speak uh, French fluently, and it's a French territory. And when we did finally get someone hearing us on the radio, they spoke fluent French and no English. So a Canadian guy and myself, between us, we tried to patch together some, um, I don't know, high school uh, French, that we, we, a little bit of which we still had. Um, but it's very difficult um, to tell you, to tell people um, certain things nautically um, in French when you don't know the language. So we had, we had great trouble um, getting anyone to, to work out where we were. So there was, there was no clue. No one knew where we were. They just knew that we were somewhere within radio range. Uh, perhaps a couple of hundred kilometres um, radius from the island. And there are lots of little reefs that you can land on. We tried flares, but our flares, unfortunately, all failed. They'd expired um, a couple of years before. Um, and, the, and the new ones... We lost overboard as we were bringing them up from, from below decks. So we went to go set them off, and, and a giant wave came and hit us. And it was one of those situations where the person carrying the flares, wasn't me, um, the person carrying the flares either had to hold on to the boat or hold on to the flares. And Of course, it wouldn't be much use if you were floating off with, with flares and you'd left the boat behind. So the flares went. So those are our good flares. we only bad ones, and they didn't work. Well. What do you do we can't you can't launch the life raft because there's very sharp coral everywhere and it would have been torn to pieces um we couldn't swim because we knew we could see how far it was we could see the currents it was pitch black it was a really hopeless situation and and the funny thing about this this experience um is is i really identify with what the disciples were going through in the boat they try everything they can you know and gradually the panic increases until they've run out of all the tricks that they can think of, and they finally say, we better maybe ask the carpenter in the back of the boat. Who knows? He may have some ideas. But help. Help, Jesus. We're going to die. Don't you care? Well, that's how how it was that night for us on the boat. We all respond differently when we're in shock. Um, I responded with anger. I was angry with everyone on the boat. I was angry with the boat. I was angry with the reef. I was even angry with God. And I, I, I didn't shake my fist at God, but I felt like it. And I said a few things that I won't repeat in those first few minutes as I, as I went into shock. I know uh, the Canadian guy, he was young, he was only 10, he turned 19 that night on the boat. Uh, he, he responded completely differently. He began to laugh hysterically. He thought everything was funny. Um, and it's not a good combination when you've got one person who's incredibly angry and another one who just thinks everyone, everything's very funny. Uh, there were a few points where I wanted to throttle him. Um, others did their own thing. You know, one one uh, went into, um, into shock and went completely silent. And he didn't talk the entire night. Um, and so it is strange how we react. But there was an, a, an incredible moment, for me at least, I remember, and, and, and for some of the others, where we sat down in the cockpit of the boat and we prayed and we said, God, Lord, we are completely helpless. We have done all that we can, and there is nothing left that we can do. And we realize we need to leave it to you now. And at that moment, a peace came over my heart and over the others too that I'd never, ever experienced in that way before, not, not, not as intensely as in that moment. Now he didn't suddenly, at that point, um, reveal a, a marine helicopter, search and rescue helicopter in a big spotlight and everywhere and it was almost like heavens had opened and we were saved. That didn't happen. But what did happen is that we were able to pray together and we were able to say, thy will be done. We were ready to go to be with him if that's what it came to. And, you know, you can read that verse uh, in which Paul says, To live is Christ and to die is gain. And you can read it and go, Ooh, Okay, <laughs> not quite ready for that. Um, but in that moment, I suddenly vividly understood what Paul was talking about. The end of the story, basically, in a nutshell, is that. We were seeing, uh, we found one flare on the boat that worked. Our last flare, we shot it up in the air, it hung there perfectly, floated down, and it turned out that some nuns at about midnight, uh, Catholic nuns were sitting in the emission station on the veranda, having a nightcap, and uh, they were looking out to sea. No, it's true. They were looking out to sea, um, because that's what you do on the island. There's nothing else to look at. Um, You're looking out to sea, and they see this tiny red, little red light. In fact, it was, it was the oldest nun there. She was in her 80s. We met her the next day. Um, she was in her 80s. She had seen that tiny little red light over the horizon. And then it disappeared. And she said to the younger nuns, um, I think I saw something out there, maybe a flare. And they got some binoculars, which someone had given them only a few days before. And the, one of the younger nuns had a look. and, and she said, I think that's a flare. I think that's a boat out there in distress. So they phoned the uh, local police. And it just so happened also that there was a, a team of elite gendarmes, so basically like commandos, French commandos that had come out from France, been in Newmere in, in, in uh, New Caledonia, and were now visiting this island for just two weeks. And they had only turned up about a day before. And they were there to train the local police in, anti-terrorism measures, which I don't think they had to worry too much about. Um, but more importantly, marine rescue. And uh, the difficulty was there was no helicopter, nothing on the island like that. They just had a few small fishing boats. And so eventually they made their way out to us. It was about 3 in the morning. We'd been on the, on the reef for about 6 hours at that point. We were thoroughly soaked and tired and we'd had, had, had our you know, share of it. Uh, they came out to us. There was all kinds of crazy uh, ways, schemes, that we came up with trying to get from, from where we were stuck to where they could, they could come to, which was about 100 meters distant, and there was this, this big gap. But eventually, we managed to work out this sort of uh, jerry-rigged system where, where we, one person would, would, would swim with a rope attached to them, and they would make it to the other side. And you know, it, was, it was crazy. There's big breakers coming over us as it happened. And finally, they got us back to shore. That night, I was ready to meet my maker. I was ready to go to be with God if that's what it came to. Not because I was brave, but because I suddenly realized that I was helpless and that my creator cared about me. And you might think, well, well, he didn't care that much about you, did he, to let you go through that experience or put your life in danger like that? But he, no, he does care. He cares more deeply than anyone else on earth for my welfare, for my, my future. And so I was able to go through that experience and know that I have a a creator that cares for me deeply, whose will is greater than mine. And while I could have gone to be with him, instead he chose to let me stay. I always do this. I don't know why. I always choose stories that make me get all teary. And so if you're going through life, I want to leave you with this you recognize that his will is better than ours, and you see him for who he really is, is Jesus, the Jesus of the Gospels, Jesus of the Bible. And you get to know his word, you get to know him. And therefore you have a clear picture of who he is, then you have great faith. It's recognizing him for who he is. It's not more faith in your faith account. And I love this quote by Hudson Taylor. He knew what it was like to go without, to face all kinds of incredible challenges and and, and hurdles. My heart was as light as my pocket. He had no money, but he didn't care because he knew God, the plan for him, and he would trust him for what he needed. So I, I am insufficient, but his grace is more than sufficient for me. Therefore, draw closer to the word and realize what he is capable of. That's what I want to leave you with. Thanks very much. Um, I'm going to pray, and then if the band want to come up. Heavenly Father, we thank you for who you are, who you've always promised to be, and who, in fact, you have been in our lives so often when we have trusted you. Lord, help us to have a clearer picture of what a faithful relationship looks like, and realize that you are a gracious God You care for us, and you have a greater plan than we could ever conceive. We thank you in Jesus' name.